Lord God, um, we come to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, expecting to hear from your words. We thank you, Lord, um, for the teaching of Jesus in this passage. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to hear it clearly. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Is that better? Do you want to turn me up, Michael? Yeah, a little bit more. We're all good? Is that better? Okay. Um, If you have a church Bible with you, the passage is on page 831. Um, If you want to turn there with me, that might help all of us um, as we consider what Jesus has to say to us here. If you haven't been here over the last couple of weeks, um, Sarah has been leading us through a short series on prayer. And she's really been focusing on why we pray, explaining that we get to enjoy the fellowship of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we pray. And last week, she explored a little bit more deeply what that looks like. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to those, I would really encourage you to go and do that. As Sarah has also said, uh, nothing in this series is intended to be the last word on prayer. The Bible has a lot to say about prayer, and it's far more than we could cover in four weeks. So please do dig into the materials that have been recommended um, as we go along. In the time that we have over these Sundays, we can only really dip our toes in the ocean that is prayer to an eternal God. But what Jesus has to say to us in this short section of Matthew's Gospel is of eternal significance. This is, after all, as you probably know it, the Lord's Prayer, which Jesus himself has given to us as a model of how to pray. If we want to learn how to pray, or how to grow in prayer, then the best possible person we can learn from is Jesus himself. In the verses that Matthew records for us, Jesus gives us a master class on prayer. If you've been around churches for a while, you've probably heard this prayer many times, more times than you can remember. You may even have heard it preached on many times. But our hearts do have a tendency to forget and to build up all sorts of habits and practices of our own. So it's good to go back to the very basics, to the nuts and bolts of how we pray in the way that Jesus taught us. Uh, For many of us, including myself, I know that the topic of prayer is daunting. I'm not standing here as an expert, far from it. But I hope we can all learn together this morning in the school of Christ. Helpfully, and I hope you see this in the passage, Jesus' meaning in the passage is actually fairly clear. And my main aim this morning is to not make it more complicated. But I'm going to reflect on three areas of what Jesus teaches here, um, which will be the heart of the person praying, the heavenly father who we pray to, and big prayers to a big God. First of all, the heart of prayer. Jesus stresses that we need to know our own hearts when we come to God in prayer. When you first heard Karen read the passage, I don't know how it struck you. It could sound uh, like a bit of a stern list of do's and don'ts. Don't be like those people. Don't be like those people. Do this, do that. 
And Jesus does give us some warnings which are aimed to stop us from missing the point of prayer. Um, But we have to remember that whenever we hear Jesus warn, he's doing it for our good. He's not trying to send sincere Christians on a guilt trip for the ways that we might get prayer wrong. But he does know that we can easily become unhealthy in our hearts and in the way that we pray. Um, And he wants us instead to enjoy the true delight of prayer. To teach us, Jesus uses two examples from the society around him of how easy it is to miss the point of prayer. In the world around Jesus, Samaritans and Jews would all have been praying to something or someone, and so would the pagans. Prayer is a precious gift, but Jesus knows our hearts, and so he knows that like any gift, it can be used wrongly or it can be used rightly. Maybe surprisingly to us, he doesn't compare praying people on his right and give them a big gold star and not praying people on his left and give them a sharp word. What he does is compare praying people with praying people and say, God's concern when it comes to prayer is not just whether you pray, but it's the state of your heart when you do. So the first group Jesus highlights, he calls the hypocrites. There's a mismatch for the hypocrites between their heart and the outside. They direct their words to God, but the audience they really want to impress is other people. To the hypocrites, Jesus says, go ahead, knock yourselves out. If you pray to be admired by others, you will get the praise that you want. But in the end, that is all that you will get. Instead, Jesus says, we do not need to impress other people with our prayers. Better to go and pray with just God in your cupboard. The word he uses for room could also be translated as closet. I heard one preacher say that um, he became a Christian in a non-Christian family and the only safe place for him to pray was in the water closet. Um, So this is a reality that Jesus is pointing to. Um, We know that the Bible has plenty of place for all sorts of prayers. Public prayers, private prayers, sung prayers, group prayers, silent prayer. All of them have their place. Jesus does not mean that only uh, prayers during a personal quiet time are valid. A private bedroom would have been the luxury of very, very few people in Jesus' society. Probably none of his audience would have had a room that they called their own. His point is that the Father wants to hear from us sincerely, for his ears alone. If we're by ourselves, we cannot be preoccupied by trying to impress other people. God will hear us, even if no one else does. Jesus points out that although praying for the praise of other people may look impressive, it's actually a bit strange. If you wanted to tell your human father that you love him or ask him for help, it would be a bit strange if you did a quick scan of the room first just to check that other people were listening and would be impressed. If you were to walk out onto Ulster Street just now, and start praying out loud, you would probably get some raised eyebrows. That would not be normal in New Zealand culture. But the same problem that the hypocrites have who love to pray on the street corners or at the front of the synagogues can be our problem too. It's possible to turn prayer into a performance with ourselves as the lead actor. 
And the longer you pray as part of a church, the more you may feel this temptation. That is probably a particular danger, I think it's fair to say, for any of us who are willing to stand at the front of churches and lead prayers. We might begin to look for the word, the phrase, or the tone that we know or hope will earn us a pat on the back. We can do the same thing in an open time of prayer, or at a prayer meeting, or anywhere. The point is not the context, the point is our hearts. Please don't mishear this. I hope you do encourage Sarah and Graham and anyone else who's willing to pray out loud as part of this church family. Encouragement is a wonderful thing. Jesus is not criticizing encouragement. He's just saying that we can fall easily into the trap of praying in a particular way just for that pat on the back. Jesus says to his followers, look out, it is so easy to care more about what other people hear from our lips than what God sees in our hearts. At that point, our prayers have become selfish displays. Instead, pray honestly and sincerely to God, knowing that he delights to answer. It doesn't matter what other people think of your prayers. It matters that God is glad to hear from you. The second group Jesus highlights are what he calls uh, the pagans, or what in other translations is translated as the Gentiles. Unlike the hypocrites, they really do care whether God hears from them. Many people in the ancient world would have recited long lists of elaborate titles for their gods as part of their prayers. In the end, they also missed the point of prayer, even if they did miss it a bit more sincerely. You see, a heart like this sees God as a safe to be unlocked. It says, if I can just crack the code by buttering God up in the right way, then he'll open up and he'll give me what I want. If I can use the right formula, if I just pray at the right time of day or work myself into the right spiritual state of mind through repetition, then God will hear the demand and he'll be more easily persuaded. We can probably all think of examples of that trap for our own hearts. If I just say the right prayers in the right order, if I just flatter God by using lots of fancy words, if I get up every day and pray at 5 a.m., if I can pray for hours rather than five minutes, then surely God will hear me. I'm not pointing fingers here at people who may choose to practice different methods or styles of prayer which they find helpful to express their thoughts and their emotions to God. We're all different, we all speak differently, that's natural. There is value in beautiful, formal, liturgical prayers or simple, spontaneous prayers. But there can be a danger that we begin just subtly to think that by using a particular method or a technique that we're getting God on side. Jesus says when we do that, we're just wasting our breath. The Father already knows what we need. He wants to free us from the burden of needing to flatter God in order to get what we want. The Father delights to give good things to his children. In his commentary on this passage, John Calvin says that the grace of God is not obtained by an unmeaning flow of words, but on the contrary, a devout heart throws out its affections like arrows to pierce heaven. The earnest desire of Jesus' heart is that he wants us to be free to enjoy knowing and praying to God 
without the pressure that we have to work to get him on side. He wants us to enjoy the real reward of prayer, true closeness with God, and not be burdened by a feeling that we have to get our prayers right according to a formula that will impress God. So whether we're praying beautiful liturgy or just praying simple one-word prayers, thanks, sorry, or maybe just help, we must remember that God already knows what we need, but he delights to hear us pray for him. What Jesus says in these two examples, I think just clears away a whole lot of fog that we can let surround prayer. He says you don't have to impress other people with your prayers. You don't have to flatter God with your prayers. When we're free of those burdens, we're more truly free to enjoy the closeness and intimacy with Father, Son and Holy Spirit that we were made to enjoy. When we do that, we can begin to truly worship him in our prayers and really begin to enjoy seeing and sharing in his work in the world. When our hearts are right before God, prayer is sincere and it is simple. The second thing I want to draw out from this passage, look at how Jesus addresses God when he opens his prayer. We need to know who we're praying to. To the simple, dependent, sincere prayer, it is the Father in heaven who gives the reward. In the opening of his prayer, Jesus invites us to call God our Father in heaven, just as he does. So much of the message of the Bible is wrapped up in those words, our Father who is in heaven. Our relationship to God, Jesus says, is like that of children who trust their good father, their good dad. Jesus deliberately uses the common Aramaic word for dad rather than the Hebrew. And in doing that, he dignifies every language as appropriate for addressing God. You can pray to him from a hut in the New Zealand bush. You can pray to him from a palace in Paris or a favela in Brazil. You can pray to him in English. You can pray to him in Tureo. You can pray to him in Latin. You can pray to him in Mandarin. God hears because he loves his children. Jesus is not unique among Jewish teachers of the period in calling God Father. Though his stress on the fatherhood of God is very distinctive. He wants us, maybe especially when we pray, to know that we can speak to God with the trust of a child to their loving father. How important might that be for people who this week have lost a lot in parts of this country? The theologian Donald MacLeod put it, Sometimes there is nothing left, and I mean absolutely nothing left, but the belief that he loves me. I don't understand what he's doing. I don't know why he's doing it. I don't find it easy to bear. But the rock under my feet is that he loves me. A father who cares. We don't have time to get to the depths of the fatherhood of God and everything that that means. Although there will be some time for discussion over coffee afterwards, I hope, and I would love to speak to anyone about that. Jesus says that if you are an adopted child of God, you are given the privilege to call him Father when you pray. And you might say, but I'm, I'm a sinful person. Surely God, who is perfect and holy, would not want to listen to me. But it is the message of the Bible from cover to cover that Jesus Christ has come to take rebels like you and me and bring us back into the family of God, with God as our Father, 
so that he might be glorified. And it is that glorious Father, that heavenly Father, that God who dwells in the heavens, who hears our simple, sincere prayers in his throne room, where the God who creates and sustains and redeems and reigns resides. If you write to your MP and you ask for something, they can only deliver what's in their power to give. Now, an MP might be able to help you a bit with some practical problems, but even the best MP doesn't have the authority to deal with the problems of the world or the conditions of our souls, even if we wanted them to. I'd recommend not writing to your MP to ask that. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus invites us to address our prayers to heaven, to the one with all glory and majesty and authority. And he goes on to give us a pattern of prayer in the verses that follow. We're only looking at the first half this week. Michael will take us into the second half next week. So my focus will just be on the part that Karen read. We need to pray big prayers to a big God. Have you ever found yourself with someone, might have happened at church, and you get trapped in a a hamster wheel of perpetual small talk? No matter how often you see them, you just can't get deeper than the weather or the cricket. We can do that, I think, with God sometimes. When we bring our priorities and our interests before his. Jesus invites us here to pray big. There is a depth and a weight to what Jesus commands us to pray for, which is so different to superficial small talk. We might call it big talk. Hearing Jesus pray is a reminder that when we pray, we are praying to the eternal, holy God, who can shake the earth to its foundations. This is the God that we've sung of this morning. This is the God of Psalm 24, who possesses the whole earth and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Hearing Jesus pray is a reminder that when we pray, yeah, we're, we're praying to the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. I said earlier that the Lord's Prayer is a model for us to follow. Jesus is teaching us the kind of things we ought to pray about. Not so that we have to follow an exact set of words, but he's laying big foundations for us to build on. Imagine for a moment a world where you had never heard the Lord's Prayer. You'd never heard Jesus' teaching. If you were to come up from your own mind with the top three things that needed God's attention, would you come up with this list? The holiness of God's name. The arrival of God's kingdom. The fulfillment of God's will on earth as in heaven. Well done, if you would have thought of those three. Because I know for a fact that without Jesus lovingly pointing me in this direction and teaching me through this prayer, that I would not have come up with those things from my own mind. And I think that contains an important message in itself. We will pray for what we think matters. Jesus' prayer offers us a challenge. Do we think these things really matter? Because he thinks God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will really matter. He thinks it's vital 
that God himself is treated as holy by people on earth. He thinks it's vital that the kingdom of God comes and that God is recognized as king. He thinks it is critical that God's purposes and plans are fulfilled. That God's will be done. John Stott said that if every prayer is just a variation on that prayer in the end. That God will do what he will do. And Jesus is not a hypocrite about this. He doesn't just pray it, he lives it. So much so that for the honour of God's name he will go to the cross. So that God's mercy and justice may be seen and that God might be glorified by all nations. He will preach the kingdom which comes wherever Jesus is received and recognised and glorified as Lord. Everything Jesus did in his life as a man, he was eager to see the will of God fulfilled. And he fulfilled it. Jesus will go on to pray that God will provide for our needs, our daily bread, forgive us our sins and guard us from temptation. It is good, don't mishear me, it is good to pray for our own personal needs. And Michael will talk much more about that next week. But the opening of Jesus' prayer is entirely taken up with God himself. His heavenly glory, his holiness, his kingdom and his perfect will. I know from experience that practically to pray that can actually be harder than it sounds. It might sound a bit abstract, a bit vague, perhaps actually just a bit too big. So how do we begin to pray these things sincerely, as Jesus calls us to? Well, one way to think about this is that generally, the better that you know a person, the more you are able to say about and to them, the deeper your conversation will become. To pray with our eyes on God himself, his kingdom, and his eternal and perfect plan. How do we get to know that God? He reveals himself in his word and supremely in the person of Jesus. If we get to know him through the truth we hear in the scriptures, old and new, we will begin to see his priorities working out. We will see his kingdom as it comes. We will see the outworking of his will in history. Seeing those things as God shows them to us and reveals them to us in his word and in Jesus, will feed our appetite for prayer and allow us to broaden our prayers to worship God for who he is and to pray bigger prayers. That will take time. It takes time for all of us. And all of us need the help of the Holy Spirit. One practical suggestion is to take the sentences of Jesus' prayer and use them a little bit like headings just to pray a bit further on the same theme and begin to deepen what we say to God about these things. Pray a sentence and then pray some more using that theme to shape your prayers. Not everyone will find that helpful and that's okay. But it might begin to help us to pray following Jesus' pattern if we use his prayer to do it. So with that in mind, let me pray for us. We pray using Jesus' words. Um, I'm just going to pray the first part of the prayer and leave a little space, enough time between each, 
so that we have time to reflect on the meaning of what Jesus is saying and pray a little further ourselves just in our hearts and minds before God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we worship you and we praise you. And we recognize that our hearts, um, in many ways, fall short of where you want them to be. But we thank you, Lord, that because of Jesus, we can call you Father and entrust ourselves to your care. We thank you, Lord, that the whole of this world is created and sustained and loved by you. Pray, Lord, that you will help us to become more eager to see your work and to share in it in this world. Amen. <clears throat>